Yes. Yes. And welcome. Okay. So we're going to get in. We'll start. Um, we'll start with like sort of the story and share. Let's uh, there we go. Um, it's okay. working. So I think I first heard of you with the story about the eve of your 40th birthday mm, and what happened one. and what you were doing and what your life was like and what that moment was like. Well, first of all, thanks for having me up here. What a beautiful uh, collection uh, of beings here to raise the vibration. They are. Yeah. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, and I like how you uh, you uh, asked who went to all of the various vegan restaurants around the neighborhood, right? <laughs> all the cool people are at Crossroads. That's like the vegan restaurant at the moment. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, I just turned 50, but... A little over 10 years ago, when I was 39 years old, uh, I was living a very different life. Um, at that time, I was about nine years, eight years uh, sober. I'm a recovering alcoholic. Uh, in the wake of getting sober from 31 onward, uh, I had wreaked so much havoc on my life. I basically was somebody who had a lot of potential early on and had the world you know, by the, by the heels. But I'd really uh, destroyed all of that. And so when I got out of my 100-day stay in rehab in, my, in the mental institution, uh, I became very intent upon repairing all of this wreckage and becoming a productive member of society and being somebody who was true to their word and could look somebody in the eye and, and show up when they said they would show up and, and really uh, get back on track. You know? And for me, that meant pursuing the American dream. And so. Um, I set about doing that, and, and it was sort of an eight-year success story. Uh, by the time I was 39, I was uh, on the partnership track at a prestigious law firm here in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I had a nice car in the driveway. I'd met my wife. I was building a family. From the outside looking in, my life looked very good. But during this period of time, I really overlooked my health and my fitness. So I was 50 pounds overweight, um, really a junk food junkie. I call it the window diet. You guys know what the window diet is? It's my, my favorite diet. If you roll your window down uh, in your car and they hand you food through the window, that's what you eat, right? And this is how I ate for you know, all of my adolescence and, and, and throughout my 20s and 30s. Um, and it's a lifestyle that left me, like I said, 50 pounds overweight, but on the inside really kind of like depressed, um, unenthusiastic about my life, like a classic couch potato hurtling into middle age, right? On a crash course with chronic lifestyle illness, you know, watching a lot of Law & Order reruns and kind of soothing my depression. I'm an expert on Law & Order, by the way. Uh, so I was having this existential crisis about, about my life because one of the things that I learned um, very early on in rehab, once the fog had cleared, I remember a counselor came up to me and he said, Rich, are you a human being having a spiritual experience or are you a spiritual being having a human experience? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't understand the question, let alone, I can't even begin to unpack what that means, but it always stuck with me, you know? And, and today, I very much, as we all are, uh, 
we're spiritual beings having a human experience. Although my wife likes to say that she's a multi-dimensional being have a, having a simultaneous experience. So that's like next level, I guess. I'm not there yet. That's the graduate yeah. course. <laughs> that's like the PhD. Did the guy who asked you that question yeah. tell you that he was quote, who he was quoting? No, who is the original? He's quoting uh, Pierre Deschardins, yes, who is I've a heard French mm -hmm. uh, Jesuit paleontologist. And if you're going to have a title, be a French Jesuit paleontologist. That's cool. I would um, like to be I that. would recommend his Divine Milieu, if you're going to start somewhere, or his collected writings, or maybe his um, book on the Omega Point. Side note. Continue right. on. <laughs> so as I'm exploring what this means to be a spiritual being having a human experience, I started to have this existential crisis about how I was living, because I was like a square peg trying to jam into a round hole, like a, being this corporate lawyer. It, it, as I continued to develop, I realized that was very much at odds with um, a more authentic version of who I was. And so shortly before I turned 40, like the, the eve before I turned 40, this existential crisis sort of collided with this health crisis that was percolating in this kind of perfect storm situation where I'd been working late, I came home, my family was asleep, and you know, on the way home I stopped at Jack in the Box and picked up my bag of burgers and ate them in the car like I always did. And as I made my way up this simple flight of stairs, uh, I had to pause halfway up, like I couldn't make it up the flight without taking a break. And I had tightness in my chest and I was buckled over and sweat on my brow and, and really fear in my heart that, that I really was you know, on the precipice of having um, something very wrong with my heart. And, and that was a very specific, crystallized moment where I realized that I needed to change how I was living. Okay, so, and Rich wrote a book called Finding Ultra. So you tell, like is it the next day you, you go for a, there's a moment soon after that when you go for a run, isn't it? So what happened was that, that kind of launched me into this exploration of how to, how to eat better and live better. And I did this experiment on myself of trying to find a way to, to eat that would allow me to feel good. And that's a whole story that played itself out over about a you know, six or eight month period. But I ended up adopting a plant-based diet. And this is something that agreed with me in ways that you know, I, I would have never expected. Uh, it rejuvenated my health. It, it gave me a sense of vitality and, and energy levels that I hadn't experienced since I was a kid. So I started to actually have a desire to exercise again, to get fit. I had been a swimmer in college, um, but that was very much you know, a past chapter of my life. And, and now I had like this verve for doing that again. So I started to go outside and move my body and uh, pulled a dusty pair of running shoes out of the closet. And my wife bought me a bike for my 40th birthday. Um, and I started participating and just being outdoors and, 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 and moving my body. And I didn't have any, um, I had no desire to becoming a competitive athlete in my 40s. I just wanted to lose the gut that I had and I wanted to be able to enjoy my children at their energy level. Um, but every week that went by, the weight just kind of disappeared and I felt fitter and stronger and, and really was connecting with um, this inner joy that I had lost, like just the simple pleasures of you know the sun on my shoulders at dawn or you know jumping into the ocean like these very primal things yeah. that have brought me much so much happiness as a young person but i'd really kind of disconnected from um, but about three or four months in to answer your question about three or four months into this kind of experience that i was having i went out for uh, a trail run on a weekday morning at a trail near my house and my intention was just to run like 45 minutes or an hour something like that uh, i had stuff i had to do that day 
And it was one of those days where like everything clicked. They call it like being in the zone, you know, or like now they call it being in a flow state. I guess that's like a sexier version of the same thing. Uh, but I had that experience and I just felt like, you know, I felt unbelievable. And every mile that I ran, I felt better than the mile that preceded it. And I just decided to play this out and keep going and see what I could do. And I ended up running 24 miles that morning, which was way beyond anything I'd ever done. Uh, and it just astounded me. How long did it take? So oh, I, I wasn't even keeping track. I mean, I don't know, probably like, you know, four hours or something like that, three hours. I wasn't going fast, but I was just, I was, I ta it was, it was weird when I, when, it, when the dust settled and I finished, cause I didn't bring any water with, like we're in a desert. Like I didn't bring any water. I wasn't planning on like going that long. Right. So I ended up like, it was an out and back run and I ended up turning around sooner than I actually wanted to, because I was like, if I pass out in the desert here, like, you know, who's going to find me, right? I was in the middle of nowhere when I was doing this run. So, but anyway, in the wake of that, I thought... Had, how far had you run before that? I mean, I would go out for like five, six miles at the outset. So this was like, just completely blew away anything that I had done before. And how were you processing that, like, oh... So you're like mile 10, mile 11, mile 16, just, well, I guess we'll just keep going. Yeah, let's just keep doing it. Let's see where this goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, here's what's behind that, uh, to kind of go, go behind it a little bit. I mean, I think um, what, it, what it did, that experience, showed me uh, just how incredibly resilient the human body is. And it goes back to the words of Hippocrates, you know, 2,000 years ago when he said, let food be thy medicine. And I was treating food as medicine for the first time in my life. And we kind of hear that quote, it gets thrown out a lot. But if you ponder that, it's really profound. And I was discovering just how true that was. So I guess in some way I was, I was testing that, you know. What was a food that you hadn't previously eaten or enjoyed or, you know what I mean? That you were suddenly eating, that you were like, this stuff works. Right. Let me count the ways, Rob Bell. Oh, that was, like yeah. that was like a setup. That was like a softball. What food were yeah. you most like, ooh, that's gross, that you were suddenly like, oh, oh I mean, I'm, I feel like dancing. I'm, I'm doing, you know, these crazy green smoothies in the morning in the Vitamix that are just packed with like kale and like spinach and beets and crazy foods like spirulina and chia seeds and things I'd never even heard of before, uh, let alone practiced eating. And I noticed that the more I was eating this and the better I was feeling that my cravings were changing, I started to actually crave these, you know, bizarre foods that before I would have never, you know, even entertained eating. Um, yeah, all kinds of stuff. And when you come back from running 24 miles, what do you say to Julie? I mean, she like, where have you been? And you're like, I was just out doing almost a marathon, yeah. like I do. Well, she's she's like nothing, nothing. Julie's my wife. Nothing like ruffles her. She's I like, noticed yeah, that okay, when I cool. met her. She's yeah, that's cool. Like when I told her that I wanted to train for this crazy Ultraman race, she was like, that sounds awesome. Like she doesn't. She's like, yeah, of course you can. So do where that did the there. idea? How soon after that did the Ultraman? idea come up it was still a ways i mean if you like google my name it, it all makes it sound like it happened like you know but it took a while. rapid succession so it was really a two-year period from that staircase moment to my first ultra endurance race so you call up the organizer mm -hmm. and threaten cajole you hear about a race in hawaii mm -hmm. within two years and it's how what are the distances so when I was mulling over this 
um, idea of human resiliency and I was starting to experience things that, that I didn't think were possible, I started to ask myself, you know, what am I truly capable of? Like, what is my untapped potential that is hiding out in these blind corners? And I, and I wanted to explore that. And, and endurance sports seemed like a nice template to kind of, uh, you know, activate you. that. Yeah, to me, right? <laughs> For me. Uh, and so I was thinking about doing an Ironman. Um, that's like a bucket list item. Like, yo, you're, you're 40 now, like go do an Ironman. Um, but I read about this race that I'd never heard of before called Ultraman. I just pick, I picked up, saw it in a magazine. And Ultraman is this crazy race. It's been around like 30 years, but no one knows about it because there's no media or prize money or anything like that. Um, but it's actually double the distance of an Ironman. It's a three-day, 320-mile uh, double Ironman distance triathlon that over this three-day period, circum you circumnavigate the big island of Hawaii, which is like a super freaking big island. How far is this? How far is the swimming? So it breaks down like this. The first day you swim 6.2 miles in the ocean, and then you get out and then you get on your bike and you ride your you race your bike 90 miles. And then you go to sleep, it's like a stage race. And the next day you wake up and you race your bike 171 miles. And then the third day you celebrate this lunacy by running 52.4 miles, a double <laughs> marathon, to end up where you began. So I read about this race and I just thought, who does this? Like, people actually volunteer for this? Like, they wanna do that? And like, human beings are capable of doing something like this? It just blew my mind. But it was also one of those things where it made no logical sense whatsoever, but this switch flick, like, this switch went on in my, in my head, and I was like, or in my heart, and I just thought, I'm gonna do that. Like, it, no logical foundation for that occurring to me. What kind of reasoning but, is that? Yeah. I was talking to today about abductive reasoning. There's deductive and inductive reasoning, uh -huh. and abductive reasoning is when something abducts you, drives you around the yeah. block in a panel van and dumps you out in front of a 7-Eleven, and now that, you just know it, and you don't yeah. know how you knew it. That is exactly what happened, because it doesn't make any sense. It's an yeah. actual panel van. <laughs> yeah. I'd never run a marathon. I'd never you know, done a half Ironman, let alone an Ironman. So the idea that suddenly I was like obsessed with the idea that I was going to do this race, like it just was, it, it makes no sense and at all. And you have to qualify to get into the race? So it's, it's limited to just 35 invitation only athletes from around the world. They keep it very, very small. Um, and part of that is because every athlete has to bring their own crew. Your crew supported. They don't even close the roads during this thing. Like it's very old school. Um, so yeah, and I, I had no credentials or resume to petition the race organizer to, to let me in. So that's when I started to tap into my lawyerly skills. <laughs> I began to lobby this poor woman who, uh, who is the organizer. I, I remember I called her up, you know, probably nine or 10 months before the race, like well in advance. And I just said, listen, I just read about this thing. I know it sounds crazy, but you know, tell me what the qualifications are. Like, do I have any, like I was basically asking her to tell me to adopt another dream. I was like, tell me I'm crazy. Tell me I shouldn't be calling you. Um, and she, to her credit, I don't know why, but she said, you know, I, it's not necessarily about getting the best athletes in the world, but it's finding the right people who really 
um, are looking for something like this. So I'm not saying yes, I'm not saying no, but why don't you check in with me in a couple months and let me know how your training is. So the, she left the door open and that was like all I needed. I was like, oh, I'm in. I'm, it's like I'm dumb and dumber. So you're saying yeah, I've got yeah, a yeah, chance. Yeah. That's exactly what it was, yeah. And I just assumed I was gonna get in and I just started training for it, yeah. And then you show up in Hawaii, you get, have to get a crew. Right. So are you like getting friends and being like, I need you to be my crew. And they're like, what are we doing? And you're like, we're going to Hawaii. Yeah. To do what? Well, that's a long story. Yeah, exactly. Like get... I, I recruited like a couple buddies of mine that, that knew nothing about what was going on. But I didn't know anything either. I was like, come on, it's going to be awesome. We're going to just cruise around Hawaii. It's going to be great. You know? <laughs> and what made it tricky, this race happens over Thanksgiving weekend every year. So everybody has plans on Thanksgiving, right? So it was actually pretty hard to find friends who were available to do it but I hoodwinked a couple buddies into doing this thing and, and none of us knew anything. So we show up like the bad news bearers, you know, for this event. And the race, and what's the race like? So the race is, it's beautiful. You know, this is a, this is a world championship event. Uh, so there are unbelievably elite athletes that turn up to vie for uh, the podium and to win this crazy thing. And I just remember showing up and looking around and going, oh my God, I'm in like way over my head Are you head intimidated? Are you like adrenaline? Are you like- Well, I was, I was intimidated, but I was also excited. Like I felt I had this, you know, sense that this is where I belonged. And, and what really drew me to it was less, it wasn't about how many people can I beat or how fast can I do this? I was looking, like I said, I was having this existential crisis. Like, who am I? And like, what do I? What am I here to do? What am I here to contribute? Um, you know, what is it inside my heart that is underexpressed? And and I didn't know the answers to any of those questions. So I was using the training and this race as a means of of deepening my sense of self-understanding. And this race, really, what I think, really, what drew me to it initially was that it's so much more than a race. Like it's this spiritual odyssey, right? And of course there are people that want to win and they're racing, but at the same time, the primary objective and the kind of organizing principle around it is that every single person who participates in it, whether you're a crew member or an athlete, is that at the conclusion of this three-day period, you've had a life transforming experience. And that's what I was looking for. I was looking to transform mm -hmm. my life and I was using this as a tool, as a vehicle, for figuring that out for myself. And you finish in what place? So in 2008, I show up and I had, I had one goal. My goal was don't die. <laughs> like, don't die, you know, it's not, it's not worth it. Um, and I didn't know what I was in for. I remember I got there a couple days earlier and I drove the course, like I, dro I got a rental car and I drove all, because I wanted to see what I was about to tackle. It took me the entire day in a car to drive this around, and I was like, oh my God. You know? <laughs> you know? Uh, so I approached it um, from a very tepid place uh, and in reverence, and also the island is powerful. There's a lot of powerful energy there, light and dark, yeah. and, and, and you have to really respect that. And I went in with a healthy mindset about that, I think, but ultimately when, when it was all said and done, I was the second fastest American, and I finished 11th that year, wow. so, right. So I was like, okay, yeah, well, it's not like I won, you know, or anything like that, but. Did you just say it's not like I won? Yeah. Yeah, because none it's of us were like impressed. We were like, it's not like you won. Uh, I'm telling you, the, the human body is resilient. 
This is what I'm discovering. Yeah. Mm. And when you, where do you go after, after that? Are well, you like, oh, a whole new world opens up? Or is it like, okay, there, now we know. Yeah, I mean, a whole new world opened up for me. I was like, I just loved it. And I was like, I just knew I was in the right place. Like, I just loved everything about it. I couldn't wait to go back the next year. And, you know, like I referenced earlier, I really, I had this question, this obsession of trying to tap into, you know, a greater potential of myself. And I was discovering that I could do that in this venue. Um, but doing that one race didn't satisfy me like I'd answered it. Like, I felt like, oh, I could, I only trained for this thing for seven months. I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I'm going to come back next year and, and, and actually race it and see what I'm capable of doing. So that's what I did. So I showed up in 2009, the second year, uh, and jumped in the ocean. And when I got out of the 6.2 mile swim, I had a 10 minute lead on the next guy. And I held that lead the entire day for that, the, that 90 mile bike leg. So I won that stage one. Like I was winning this world championship event by 10 minutes. I'm like a 43-year-old corporate lawyer, you know, I'm like, what is going on? Like, something weird beyond my understanding is happening. And I remember going to sleep that night thinking, there's something about this plant-based diet, I think, that's working well. I better not tell anyone about it. She's <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to keep that my little performance secret, I think. Um, but the next day... Uh, didn't go so great. I, I crashed my bike about 30 miles into the 171-mile bike leg and landed on my left knee and my left shoulder. I took all the skin off my left shoulder and my knee swelled up. There was blood everywhere and I broke my pedal and I thought my race was over. Um, when you tell that story in the book, I put the book down and like had like a cathartic sobbing. Mm. Oh, wow. I, I had, it was an overwhelming... Like, I, I'm, I love this guy. I'm going to be friends with him. I had uh, one of those, like, super fan moments. And here we are. I know. This is amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah. I'm trying to stay calm. Um, <laughs> but I was so... So that feeling, like, like, we had come along with you, and then you're lying... And you describe it like you're in the middle, kind of in the middle of nowhere mm -hmm. with blood everywhere and your bike broken, and it's like, oh. And, yeah, I'm trying to set up the cliffhanger here. And right. then... And then... So, how to unpack this? I mean, I think, you know, when you're, when you're so focused on something, whether it's an athletic event or anything else that you're passionate about, you have that laser focus, right? You're just, you're all in. And when, my, when I, I could, de like, my injuries were bad and I was having trouble bending my knee, but the broken pedal, that was like the deal breaker. And, and in that moment, I just, I snapped out of that focus and I was like, I'm done, you know, like there's nothing, I can't, I'm not going to ride my bike 150 miles on one leg, you know, like that's a challenge for another day maybe, but We not actually today. think you could do that, yeah, but anyway, so, come on. Uh, and it was in an area of the course where the crew vehicles weren't allowed to follow, so I had to ride my, once I collected myself and, and you know, figured out that I didn't have any broken bones or anything like that, I got on my bike and had to pedal on one leg about a mile to reconnect with my crew, and this, this year, my wife and my boys were my crew members. Um, and during that one mile period, I just checked out. I was like, I'm, it's over with. Uh, I started thinking about taking the kids to the beach the next day. And I was like, actually, this is a really convenient way to bow out of this extremely painful experience and no one's going to fault me. <laughs> you know? I mean, this actually could work out pretty well. I had a good day yesterday and maybe I'll come back next year. But when I did reconnect with my crew, there was a crew member for a different athlete. Like one of the, another, uh, 
another beautiful thing about this race is that another organizing principle around it falls under uh, this word ohana, which is Hawaiian for family. So although it's a competition, everybody's supporting each other. So if a crew from another athlete, um, if, if an athlete needs help and his crew members aren't around, another crew will come to the aid, right? That's beautiful. So this person who was helping another athlete came up to me and said, what kind of pedal do you need? And he was bigger than me. I looked up at him and I was like, why are you asking me that? You know, I'm, like I'm done. Fog. You're sort yeah, of I'm like, it. plus I'm done, you know? And he grabbed my bike and he came back and he had put not only a brand new pedal on my bike, but the exact make and model that I needed to fit my cleat. It's a very specific thing, right? Like the idea that somebody would have the pedal that I needed was just, I mean, I, I couldn't fathom the, you know, how that could be. But he handed me my bike and he just said, you gotta get back on your bike and you gotta finish this, which was, you know, I'm looking up at him and I'm like, that was not the news that I wanted to hear. But he was intimidating and uh, <laughs> he scared me a little bit. And what does Julie so, say? Um, she was like, you need to get on your bike. You know, we're all here for you. You know, we're all here for you. And my family had sacrificed. Yeah, yeah. It just kills my, me every time. My family had sacrificed a lot. You know, my family had sacrificed a lot for me to be there because they believed that this was something that I needed to do. And, and during this period of time, to put it in context, we were having a really hard time. We were having a lot of financial problems. We almost lost our house. There were plenty of times where we couldn't pay our bills. Like, it got so bad, they took our garbage cans away, and we couldn't pay the bill to get our garbage cans back, so we would have to put our garbage in our car and find an empty dumpster to, like, dump our stuff. Like, it was, you know, there were times where, and I'm a father, I have four kids, you know, days where I had to, you know, it was like, how are we gonna put dinner on the table tonight? And, and another partner might have said, enough of this nonsense, you need to go back to your law practice and focus on you know, bringing home the bread. And I had many moments of, of thinking I need to give up because this doesn't make any logical sense. And my wife, to her credit, who's very much more a spiritual seeker than I am, like she's like a Jedi, she was like, no. She goes, money comes and goes, there's no question in my mind that this is what you're supposed to be doing. And it, the way that you're, we're gonna see this through to the other side is for you to go out and train. And you need to train first before everything else and we'll figure it out. So she had my back in a huge way. So in that moment of having that pedal put back on that bike, I knew like I, I have, there's unfinished business here. So I got back on my bike and you know went through the next six or seven hours of excruciating pain to finish this race. And certainly I was no longer in the lead, like I was, I'd lost, I don't know how much time, you know, maybe an hour or something like that, fiddling around. So when that bike leg was done, you know, I, I, it was, I, I couldn't imagine undergoing anything more painful than that, but I got through it. But the idea of like getting out of bed and running the next day, like that wasn't gonna happen. You know, I could barely bend my leg. Even after an ice bath that night, I couldn't walk upstairs and I didn't think it was gonna be possible to finish even still, so. And you did? I did, I did, because uh, in the spirit of Ohana, I showed up at the starting line the next day, um, unsure of whether I was gonna be able to run, but in solidarity with my fellow competitors and, and, and crew members, showed up to sort of see everyone off, and I just thought, well, I'll walk a little bit and see how the knee does, and it was stiff, but okay, I was walking, and I'll try a jog, and I started jogging, and it seemed like it was holding up okay. 
And then before I knew it, I was running, and then I started passing people, and then I was passing a lot of people. <laughs> and, uh, and just continued to work my way up the field. And I did finish it and, and ended up being the fastest American that year. And I got, many, six, how, I got six that year. How so. many miles was that run then? 52.4. Yeah. So the knee was a little wobbly the first mile, but we were yeah. able to get through the next 51. Yeah. It loosened up. It loosened up. Uh, you've mentioned, I've noticed in several places in your writing and speaking, you've mentioned those hours of training in those years and this sense that the, the hours on the bike, the hours in the pool, that you were finding something, working something out, searching for something. Mm -hmm. You've talked about the, the agony of that sort of distance, but how it was doing something in you. And in the book, you get this sense yeah. like your whole life history and struggles and battles are somehow in that. Right. I think that, that my whole life, I was somebody who never felt comfortable in their own skin. You know, I was very much an outsider, very much an introvert, and would kind of go along to get along. You know, I became a people pleaser, uh, and I didn't have very good boundaries. Uh, and so I would just find myself in situations that I didn't want to be in all the time. And that kind of um, predicted the trajectory of my life and culminated in, you know, becoming an alcoholic and being in a career that I think was ill-suited for me. Uh, and, and, and sort of this existential crisis uh, transforming into becoming this ultra-endurance athlete, what I was finding, what I was seeking, what I was finding in the, the day in and day out training, I mean, the training for this thing became like a job. I mean, it's like 20, 25 hours a week of you know, un, an unbelievable amount of hours running and riding my bike and a lot of alone time. So there's an active meditation component to that for sure because you are with yourself. And above and beyond that, um, it's about acclimating to uh, being in pain for a very long period of time, like extended periods of time. And, and it strips you down. You know, and after a while, you cannot hide or lie. You cannot hide from yourself or lie to yourself. You are forced to meet who you are in a very profound way, and and that's what I was seeking, and that's what I got. And you know, people say to me in the context of the race and crashing, and people will say to me, you know, well, do you think you could have won the race if you didn't crash, or you know, are you upset? Or it's like, no, I didn't. I didn't get into it to like beat people and be on a podium and get a medal. I got into it to deepen my connection with myself. And in the context of, of competitive athletics, if, you, if everything goes your way, that's great for the ego, but it doesn't really reveal too much about who you are, right? It's, it's, it's not a learning experience, right? It's when things go wrong and you're forced to uh, make a decision and that decision requires you to confront yourself in a profound way, that's a teachable moment. And that decision that you make will reveal who you are. It will reveal your character. And the training on a daily basis provided me those opportunities, you know, multiple times a day. And it's so, it's almost like, um, in Hinduism, there's Kali, right? Who's like the fire, like you burn in the fire. And so I was burning myself in the fire to burn that residue off so that I could be rebirthed as a new person. And so this was just the, the crucible that I chose 
to have that experience. So, so then you go from uh, corporate lawyer, Jack in the Box, corporate lawyer, uh -huh. to glo you're now in like a global elite group of athletes who are like, where did the who's this guy? Mm -hmm. And are you suddenly, are there all sorts of, are there sponsorships speaking other races? Like, does your life, or is it much more like, no, you just get on the bike and... Yeah, no, I mean, this, if you want to make money in ultra endurance <laughs> this sports, is not, is not an avenue to do that. Uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, you know, now there's all kinds of money coming in. It wasn't like that at all. I will say what did happen was people became very interested in how somebody could do these kinds of things without eating animal products, and that became a newsworthy story. So I, I suddenly found myself on the receiving end of a lot of attention that I didn't expect, because I was just doing this for myself. You know, I was trying to, I, I didn't have any, I wasn't doing this for getting attention from anybody, um, but see, people were really interested in it. So like Sanjay Gupta from CNN comes to my house to interview me, like things got really weird, you know, in like a cool way, like that was awesome. Because you're Jack in the Box guy, and now CNN, and you're like, well, yeah. you know, I put the beats with the ginger, right. yeah, and that's exactly. how we do it. Yeah, like I'm some kind of expert. I've only been doing it like three years or something at that point. Um, but, but that didn't. But still, like a funny thing happened. I remember Julie always tells this story. Like after getting all this attention, still, like we were having trouble. Like you know, I'm training. Like there's no money coming in really. I'm still trying to practice law, but like everything's pretty hectic. Um, and the day that Sanjay Gupta was coming to our house, um, we hadn't paid our, our gas bill in a while, and she was going to cook for him. And she was like, when I turn the gas thing on the thing, like, I'm not sure if it's going to work. You know, like, with the, and it's like, that's what it was like. It was like, we were, it was, it was a situation in which my, my life was going to explode in a miraculous, amazing way, or we were going to go down in flames in like such a, you know, thing. It was either or. There was not going to be any middle ground, you know. And so we were, we were like on the fulcrum of that, that um, uh, seesaw for, you know, a very long period of time before things balanced out. And then when did the Epic Five idea, how far from there? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so, that, so the following year in 2010, I thought I was done. I was like, you know, because I got into this to ask my, you know, to sort of, you know, what is my, I felt like I'd answered those questions for myself. Like I really had connected with myself in a profound way. And, and hey, you know, Sanjay Gupta's coming over. Like I'm done with this. Like it's all good now. Uh, but my, I got a phone call from my buddy, Jason Lester, who, who's a um, friend of mine that I trained with and competed with at Ultraman. And he's a remarkably inspirational human being. Uh, not only does he do these crazy races, he does it without the functional use of his right arm. Uh, his, he was uh, the victim of a car crash when he was in his teens. And so his arm is, is like an atrophied you know, appendage that doesn't function. Like it's not, it's not um, removed from his body. It's not so amputated. He does like six miles in so the imagine ocean. doing that, that 6.2 mile swim with one arm. Like, that's what this guy does, right? So he's quite remarkable. Uh, and he's gone on to do amazing things. Like, he ran across Australia. He's run across America. He does lots of cool stuff. Um, but he called me up, and he's like, I got this idea. <laughs> I, he goes, I call it Epic Five. I want to do five Ironmans on five Hawaiian Islands in five days. 
And I said, that's an awesome idea for you. <laughs> you know? He's like, no, you have to do it with me. We have to do this together. Um, and I was like, I don't know, man. That sounds like a lot of work, you know? Because the other stuff you've done had <laughs> yeah. just been sort of easy. But this was like next level. Uh, he's like, no, it's going to be awesome. He's like, just think about it. Just and no one had it. done this. No one had done it. No one had done it. And I think that, that was what, that was the linchpin that got me to do it. Because he was like, just think about it. And I did. And I thought about it. And, I, and, and it got me thinking about all the extraordinary, amazing things that human beings have done in the world of adventure and endurance sports. Like, we've gone to the moon, and people have, uh, you know, hiked to the summit of all the tallest mountains, and people have kayaked across the Pacific and ridden, raced their bikes across the United States without sleeping, and three guys even ran all the way across the Sahara Desert. Like, all this crazy stuff had been done, and it seemed like there was nothing left. Like, where is the outer edge of that, you know, what's the next thing? And here was a challenge that it seemed like, are you sure no one's ever done this before or tried to do it? Like, it seemed very obvious and, and, and elementary. So the fact that no one had attempted to do it was what... Yeah, obvious and elementary yeah, yeah, were our words, like, for sure. It's a great way to see Hawaii. <laughs> and um, so you set out... So we set out to do it. Um, yeah, in, in May of 2010, May 5th, 5-5, five, five, uh, we set out to do this crazy thing. Um, and it was beautiful and remarkable and challenging and painful. Uh, and there's a million amazing stories uh, from that experience. But there's one story that's really dear to my heart, if you'll indulge me. Can I tell it? Mm -hmm. So it was the fourth day. We were on the island of Maui. And the wheels were starting to fall off the wagon. Like at this point, uh, the sleep deprivation and the dehydration and just the sheer exhaustion of this thing was really catching up to me. Um, we'd started on Kauai and then we went to Oahu and then we did Molokai and we were in Maui. And the thing about this was that it wasn't really a race, it was a, it was a challenge, right? So um, it was about efficiency as much as anything else. Like, we don't want to go too hard, but the longer we're out, you know, outdoors, the less sleep we're going to get, et cetera. And logistically, it was a nightmare because we had all this gear and we had a couple of people helping us, but not that much support. And we had to finish the Ironman by a certain time every day so that we could make the last flight off the island to get to the next island. And we're schlepping all this gear on the plane. It was like insane. And so by the time we'd get checked into the hotel at the next place, like we were getting like two or three hours of sleep. So in addition to like doing these Ironmans, we weren't sleeping. And so this was, this was the <laughs> getting, it was getting crazy. And so on Maui, the last, <laughs> come on, Rob, I'm going to get Rob out on a bike and I'm going to, I would love that. Yeah, gotta, I just love that on, was it day four, things were getting crazy. Yeah, things were getting crazy on day four. So the last like 10, I remember like we had like uh, 10 miles left on the bike leg of Maui. And I thought we were almost done. Like my little computer on my bike said I had like a mile left. And I was like, thank God. Like at this point, I, could, I really couldn't sit down on my saddle anymore. My saddle sores were so bad. I, was, I had all this pain in my undercarriage. and. Just, I was staring at the side of the road, just thinking, can I just lie my bike down on the pavement and go to sleep? Like, I was so exhausted. 
And one of the crew guys drove up next to us and he looked out the window. I was like, we got a mile left. And he's like, no, actually that's a miscalculation. We have like six miles left. And I literally burst into tears. Like I was like, I just started crying, you know, like, like it can't be. And so I kind of crawled my way to the end of this bike leg and just dropped my bike. And I was like, that's it, I'm done. Like I can't, the idea, cause we still had to run a marathon that night. And I, I was like, the prospect, <laughs> of running right now, it, it had nothing to do with self-will or like motivation. Like it just wasn't a physical possibility that this was gonna work out. And, and Jason was hurting too. Um, and I knew he was thinking the same thing. But of course, one of us has to say it out loud. Like who's gonna call it off? Like it was this game of chicken. Like I'm looking at him like, it's okay. We can go back to the hotel, you know, live to fight another day. And he wasn't budging. And right when I was about to say, that's it, I can't do it, the weirdest thing happened. So we were in this parking lot by this beach, it was Kihei Beach in Maui, where we had started the morning. And there was like maybe eight of us, we had some volunteers that day, and Jason and I were sitting on the bumper of this minivan, um, you know, sort of in this, uh, no exit, John Paul Sartre, you know, <laughs> dynamic. And from the distance, from the beach, from the, my peripheral vision, I saw this woman coming up, walking towards us from the sand. And she stepped under a street lamp that illuminated her. And I could tell she was like kind of haggard, like she'd been out in the sun too much. She had like leathery skin. She was wearing this teal tank top and she had a, a bottle in her hand. And she was kind of unsteady in her gait. And I realized, oh, she's like, you know, some drunk, like who's been down on the beach. And she walks up to our group and she kind of pauses and she's serving, it's like midnight now, right? She's serving this situation, like looking at this bizarre group of people you know, in this parking lot, wondering like, what are these people doing here? Like, what is going on? And she's kind of, her gaze goes back and forth like this. And then for whatever reason, she, locks eyes with me. She's like, comes right up and stands above me like this, and, and we're like this. And I'm like, what is, you know, what does she want? Like, what is she doing? And she looks down at me and she goes, hey man, do you want to party with me? <laughs> I'm like, do I want to party with you? No, I, I don't, no, I do not want to party with you. <laughs> And I kind of, I was like trying to wave her off. Like when you're that exhausted, even the slightest external stimuli is very overwhelming. Like it was like, I just, I couldn't handle it. Like I just wanted her out of my line of sight. She kind of, ah, okay. And like kind of shuffled off into the night. And I watched her go and I was like, thank God she's gone. But then a thought occurred to me that, you know, she, she really wasn't, that different from me because had I made, you know, I didn't get, get into my whole like kind of past and drunk a log, but you know, had I made a couple decisions in my life differently than I did, I could very easily be living her life, you know, very easily be living her existence. And I, and I had this overwhelming surge of like compassion for her and how painful her life must be. And it dawned on me that that was the furthest thing from a random occurrence. Like, why did she choose me? Like, why was I the person that she walked up to to talk to? And I, and I knew in that moment that she was like this angel 
that had been delivered to me, specifically to remind me of how far I had come in my life from really, you know, quite honestly, a guy, you know, a hope to die, unable to live drunk, to the grips of this remarkable, fantastic adventure, well, you know, well beyond my wildest imagination. Um, and I reflected on that, and I reflected on how my life had been saved twice, you know, first through sobriety and then through this, um, you know, new lifestyle that I had adopted that had brought me to this place. Uh, and then I went into, like, this fugue state. Like, I don't even really quite remember what happened next, but I, when I kind of came out of it, Jason and I were, were walking. And that, again, was a walk that turned into a jog, that ultimately turned into a run, <laughs> that culminated in the completion of a marathon that night. You know, something that was made possible by a power and a force that exists outside of myself. That I know for sure. That I know for sure. So, wrong. <laughs> ah, um, oh, man. Good Lord. Then the fifth one was really easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember you um, telling me the first time we met, because I was asking that I assume everywhere you go, there are people who come up and are like, what are the best shoes to wear when I'm riding 100 miles, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you were said that people want to know, how do I run 100 miles? And you said you always say to them, why do you want to run right. 100 miles? The why is the key. You know that, right? I do. Yeah. People think they know why they're making decisions in their life, but I'm convinced that most people are, are not clear on that, right? I certainly wasn't for most of the decisions I've made in my life. Yeah. Yeah, and you get... So, um, I've, you use the word plant power, mm -hmm. not vegan. And uh, by the way, Rich and Julie made a cookbook called The Plant Power Way. Kristen got it for Christmas and I started cooking from it and like changed everything for me. Like literally just changed the way I think about almost everything. It was unbelievable. When did you first- I went over to Rob's house before this and he had it staged on his countertop just because I was coming over. And I swear to you, not staged. <laughs> yeah. It's got, you know that cookbook that you have that has food stains? Yeah. I never had one of those till now. Um, what has that, and, in, and when did you first think we should put some of these recipes? Because I make this stuff for friends and they're like, this is the greatest food I've ever had. When did you first think we should probably make a cookbook? Well, I mean, we get asked all the time, like, how do you, you know, how do you make this work? Like, what do you eat? How does this, you can be an, you can do all this crazy stuff on, on plant-based foods. Like, how does that work? And does it taste terrible? And like, what is it exactly? So there was, we knew there was demand for this, um, for this information. Uh, but the idea of putting it into a book, like, I went and looked at all the vegan plant-based cookbooks out there, and I needed to be convinced that we could, contrib could contribute to that canon of work in a unique and different way than what was already available. Because, you know, it's a lot easier to just say, get this other book or whatever. But what I realized is there was a lack of information um, on how to do it for, like, the average busy family. You know, parents with kids and, 
you know, just sort of people living our lives the way that we, that we all do. And I felt like I could provide something unique and, and helpful in that regard. All the recipes are, my wife is a brilliant cook. She's an artist and she uses food, uh, you know, as a template for her art. But all of the recipes in the book really came out of a very genuine, authentic experience of my wife just trying to feed me, you know, to sate me while I was doing all this crazy training, provide healthy uh, food that would fill me up and, and make me happy, while also not having to spend all day in the kitchen. Like, you know, I, if she's gonna cook it, the four kids have to be able to eat it. Like, I'm not spending all day in the kitchen. You know, it's gotta work, so it's gotta be tasty. And so it really was a natural outgrowth of that experience that we had. And so the book is really, in addition to all kinds of recipes, it's a primer on how to access this lifestyle, you know, for the, the average busy modern family with lots of like tips and tools and things like that. So you mentioned in, in the book, there's an essay in the middle of the book where you talk about how not eating one cheeseburger saves the same amount of water mm -hmm. as not showering for eight months. Right. So to preface that, you know, I, I adopted this plant-based diet really for selfish reasons. Like I didn't want to feel lousy anymore. I didn't want to be fat. Um, but I've been doing this now 10 years and my motivations have evolved and shifted as I've learned more and become more aware of uh, just how broken our food system is and the deleterious impact that it's having on not only our health, but on the health, you know, our personal health, but on the health of the planet. So um, these have become issues that are very important to me. Is, has anybody in here seen a documentary called Cowspiracy? Yeah, you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a movie that I, I was involved in, in helping um, produce. And it, it, it takes a look at the impact of animal agriculture on the health of the planet. And there's some pretty staggering statistics that come out of it that are all vetted. It all comes out of a report that the UN put out in 2008 that examined these things. And, and you know, here in California, we're in the midst of a drought, um, but remarkably, it takes a thousand gallons of water to produce a gallon of milk, and it takes 660 wait, 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 gallons. Wait. A thousand gallons a thousand, of water. A thousand gallons of water are required to produce one gallon of milk, because animals are very inefficient, like middlemen, right? We have to, we have to, you know, clear all this land to raise the grain to feed to the animal, and then we gotta put all these resources into the animal so that we can extract the food out of the animal. So it's kind of inefficient, right? And so uh, it, it uses an exorbitant amount of water, 660 gallons for a quarter pound patty of beef. Meanwhile, uh, animal agriculture occupies 45% of our um, available land that's workable for growing crops and grazing. Uh, it's decimating the rainforest at a rate of like one to two football fields a second. Uh, we're, it's causing mass species extinction. It's also responsible for um, more greenhouse gas emissions than all of transportation combined. Like we like to think, well, if we just get rid of the, like if we all go electric, this will solve the problem. But animal agriculture is actually more negatively impactful than transportation. And these are all things that I didn't know, um, but it is quite amazing when you look into it and realize that we have a big problem here because population is continuing to swell. We're at like 7.3 billion right now. By 2100, they think they're gonna be like 11 billion people on the planet. Like how are we gonna feed everyone, right? And factory farming is the most efficient way of raising animals for food. 
but look what it, when you look at what it's doing to the planet, it's really an unsustainable system. So we need to find better, more sustainable ways of, of eating and, and feeding everybody. Uh, the book for me was so overwhelming because I was like, this is the best cheese I've ever had, and I just made it out of cashews and lemon juice. You know what I mean? It's like this, oh, and there's a profound ethics underlying this mm -hmm. that I think is a, a, a really, really significant contribution. So, so what do you do next? What's next? So we started doing these uh, international retreats, which is pretty cool. We're taking, we just, we took a group to Italy uh, in October and this past May, 40 people and had seven days of life transformation, which is pretty cool. And we're going to Australia in February. So that's a new thing that we're doing. And I'm starting to uh, put together a new book. And really my podcast is the main thing that, that occupies my day on a, on a daily basis, my time. Um, and I just love doing it. It's what introduce me you know to you it's how it's how we got together and it's been a beautiful uh experience and and just being able to like meet amazing people positive change makers all across the globe who are doing wonderful remarkable things to make the world a better place and so i just want to be able to continue like i'm really happy and really fulfilled doing what i'm doing like i don't I don't want for anything. I just want to be able to continue to serve. So it's for me, whether it's a book or a podcast or a trip or a speaking engagement, they're all just different venues and, and platforms for trying to be of service. So to the extent that I can widen and deepen my ability to be of service, that is, that's really my, my goal. So richroll.com. So, richroll.com. The book is Finding Ultra. The cookbook is The Plant Power Way. Can you tell them the title of the next cookbook yet? So my wife, you know, a lot of people are interested in going plant-based, but cheese, they're like, well, I'll do it, but like cheese, you know, come on, like cheese yeah. is just too good, right? So she decided she was gonna solve this dilemma and she turned our kitchen into this crazy lab and she's been experimenting with creating delicious plant-based cheeses. And I can say that she has succeeded in this regard. She's come up with some amazing things. So. Uh, she has a book coming out, um, I'm not sure exactly when, sometime next year, called This Cheese is Nuts. So, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. Ah, fantastic. Thank you. So, thank you. This is this beautiful really what you've created here. Yeah. Really great, really so. great.